A special thanks goes out to the folks at Anchor.fm for bringing you this podcast. Hello again, everyone. Today, we hear from an author who's in tune with the Rust Belt of America. I'm Tom Zania, and this is Tom Read Your Story. Coming to you almost live, it's time once again for Tom Reads Your Story, the number one spoken word podcast on the web for audiobooks, social media posts, current events, and just plain whatever. So let's start the show. For the next half hour, I'll be your host. I'm voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zanian. Miles Junction, Rust Belt, USA, where hope is scarce and hardship is a way of life. It's but one of many northeastern Ohio towns, long forgotten and left behind, its residents living on the cusp of financial, emotional, even spiritual destitution. Their lives and others are linked by a ruined yet starkly beautiful post-industrial landscape, a desolate vestige of our fractured American dream. In just the right light, is a glimpse at one region's bleak inheritance and the precarious lives of those who remain. Written by William R. Solden and narrated by Tom Zania. Listen to this incredible book by visiting audible.com. And we are back. Welcome back, everyone. I'm glad you're here. You know, I am still playing the music of the incredible artist, the concert pianist known as Katya Bunyatishvili, who I've come to realize is a person who is not only a great musician, but someone who is very involved in, uh, obviously, the uh, speaking out about the the war in Ukraine. Obviously, she's from Georgia, uh, someone very close to that country. She speaks five languages. She speaks, of course, uh, Russian, and she lives in Paris, so she speaks French. And she also speaks English, and she also speaks German. Pretty incredible. Pretty intelligent. Uh, just a totally dedicated artist who you can see in the zone and these incredible recordings on YouTube with many different orchestras, uh, recitals, uh, Everything. She's really something. And uh, once again, that name is Katia Bunya Tishvili. And uh, if you like music at all, and it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be just someone who's interested in classical music. This is someone who could play anything, I'm sure. And uh, she's amazing. Anyway, this week, uh, I want to get back into a terrific storyteller. I love these authors who uh, 
make books with, uh, you know, many different chapters that are different stories. Uh, I love stuff like that. Uh, Bill Solden is one of those authors. And I had the great honor of narrating his book in just the right light. In just the right light came out, I don't know, uh, four years ago, five years ago. I'm not totally certain. And I, I probably read when it was published, but, um, he is someone who lives in Northeast Ohio. And I think Youngstown, uh, to be more specific. And he, he writes about the aftermath of the Rust Belt, uh, how people are staying alive now, uh, what kind of jobs they're taking on, uh, you know, the, the disintegration of um, lives in that part of the country. Um, I've been to Youngstown. Uh, it's seen better days. That's about all I can tell you. Um, a lot of unemployment, a lot of poverty, a lot of, and obviously crime and drug addiction. Uh, I'm going to read, or I'm going to play one of the chapters of this book, and it's a great book. If you get the chance, I hope you go to Audible and get it, or go to Amazon and just buy the book. William's work draws greatly from the urban and rural landscapes of the post-industrial Midwest, the stark beauty, the resonant history, the strength and endurance of its grappling working class. Three times nominated for a Pushcart Prize, as well as uh, as well a as well as nominations for best of the net and best small fictions williams work appears in publications such as new world writing elm leaves journal thuglet reckon review uh, tough the best american mystery stories 2017 with a distinguished mention in 2018, and many others. His books include the story collections In Just the Right Light uh, from Unsolicited Press, which is what I narrated, Lost in the Furrows from Cowboy Jamboree Press, and Houses Burning and Other Ruins uh, from Shotgun Honey Books, uh, 2021. The poetry collections So Fast, So Close, Close to the Bone Publications, 2020, and most recently, the novel Undone Valley uh, from Cowboy Jamboree Press, 2021. He resides in Youngstown with his wife and two children and can be found on Twitter at, uh, at Rust Writer. Okay, uh, without further ado, I want to play uh, this chapter from in Just the Right Light by Bill Solden, and that is the 13th step. The 13th step. Wednesday night, and I'm in the back making coffee, while out front Rico moves in on some new girl, subtle as a swooping vulture. 
There's a name for guys like him, 13th Steppers, and meetings are full of them. The girl's probably 22, 23, but could be 40. Looks like she's been dragged through the circles of hell and barely lived to tell about it. Hair a nest of scorched red ends and black roots. She doesn't have the bitter eyes and pinched face of someone court-ordered, though. She's desperate to make a change. At least, tonight she is. The coffee urn gurgles like a wheezing lung as I set out the cream and sugar, lots of sugar, and go out to finish setting up. Literature table, collection basket, 50-50 tickets, laminated step cards with curled edges. My sponsor told me doing these things would help keep me straight. He called it service, giving back. But that was before he relapsed and got locked up, so I'm still not sold. Rico places a hand on the new girl's back, begins the regurgitated litany of maxims and ready-made phrases. Welcome home. Easy does it. One day at a time. It works if you work it. And so on. They're taped up all over the podium. Promises for a better way of life. But some of us are still waiting for the awakening. To become happy, joyous, and free. A day at a time. Still waiting. I've been keeping busy like I was told. A meeting a day, sometimes more if I get time off at the car wash because of rain. I was told, you drank every day, you need a meeting every day. What I wasn't told was for how long, how long until such dedication bears fruit. Before, I was rarely ever at home, and when I was, I still wasn't, not really. That's what my wife used to say. And she was right about that. The irony is, I'm still hardly there. You've traded hanging out with drunks for hanging out with drunks, she tells me damn near every night when I come strolling in around eleven. And of course, she's still right. Last week she asked me, Those meetings, how long are they supposed to last usually? About an hour, I said. She looked at the clock on the wall beside the fridge. You've been gone for. That's just the meeting, I said. There's more to it than that. You've got to set up and tear down, meet people, build a support system. What I didn't tell her is that I no longer have a sponsor, and instead of engaging in fellowship afterward, I drive around town past old haunts, sometimes park and sit for hours outside a bar or a liquor store, just to see how long until I cave. Uh-huh she said. And this? She gestured around the room, the piled-up laundry and dirty dishes, then picked up a stack of unpaid bills. And these? Donna, I'm trying real hard, I said. You want support? Fine, she said. But I could use a little myself, damn it. As she walked out of the room, it occurred to me that Nothing's really changed, except now I remember things in the morning and don't wake up with broken bones and blood on my clothes. There's still this distance, and no matter how many drinks I don't take, I can't close the gap. There's no longer anything to blur the damage I've caused, and the more clear-headed I am, 
the more I'm forced to see. I've put her through a lot. Can't even count the number of times she had to stop me from pissing in the pantry or taking a shit in the clothes hamper. One of my last blackouts. I came to around noon the next day. Bedroom door and splintered fragments all over the hall floor. My knuckles gashed and swollen. She'd been fixing me some food to help soak up the booze I'd been swimming in since breakfast when I passed out. She tried to wake me and I flipped, went through the door like a rabid ape. Then I went outside and beat the hell out of our charcoal grill with a lead pipe until it was nothing but a dented heap of scrap. Woke up the entire neighborhood. I didn't remember any of it, but the evidence was all there. Like the path of destruction in the wake of a tornado. And all because she wanted to love my sorry ass. Some guy from out of town, an old ex-marine named Mitch, is sharing his story. Rico keeps getting up to get the new girl more coffee. He sits really close to her, staring at her tits and whispering in her ear as she sips from the paper cup clutched between her shaky palms. She looks uncomfortable, but occasionally smiles at something he says. A smile that looks false and out of options. Mitch says... He was dishonorably discharged and almost sent to federal prison for selling stolen assault rifles on the streets of D.C. before he got sober. I'm an alcoholic of the truly hopeless variety, he tells the room. And from the looks of his burst capillaries and drifting right eye, that much is probably true. If I could get my hands on any whiskey, I'd mix up some canned heat and that'd be good enough for me he says. I've heard of guys doing this. Strain sternogel through an old sock or a loaf of bread to extract the ethanol. Bowery bums call it squeeze. Tastes like hell and rots the optic nerve. But they say it works in a pinch. In the end, I stumbled into a pharmacy and guzzled a bottle of aftershave before the cops finally showed up, he says. By then, my organs were shutting down, and I'd lost the sight in one eye. He leans over the podium and scans the room, his right eye like a loose ball bearing rattling around in his skull. After the What's It Like Now segment of Mitch's lead, he takes a seat while this month's chairperson, Eileen, thanks him for sharing his experience, strength, and hope with us then presents him with a Xerox certificate which was passed around and signed like a get-well card. Eileen's a spitfire. Can't seem to open her mouth without letting you know just how far down the scale she'd gone before arriving here. They used to call me Eileen the Blowjob Queen, she tells everyone she meets in the rooms, as if this amount of disclosure will put their minds at ease. Her personal end of the road was some fleabag motel in West Virginia. She'd held up a liquor store, smoked a bunch of rock, and had a shootout with the police for over an hour before she ran out of bullets. The incident was on the show Cops, which makes her the closest thing to a celebrity most of us will ever meet. 
Now Eileen runs her own appliance rental and repo business and is working on a master's degree in business or accounting or something like that. She's one of the successes, I guess. Men and women aren't supposed to sponsor each other for obvious reasons, but Eileen's the only person I've met since mine went off the rails that I can take seriously, who doesn't seem to be putting on a show or looking for praise. The new girl would be in good hands with her. But when I look across the room after the raffle and the Lord's Prayer, the table where she and Rico were sitting is empty. Before clearing the tables and putting up the chairs, I check outside where several people stand around smoking, drinking coffee, and telling war stories. In the parking lot, the new girl climbs into a car driven by an old woman who looks like she should be her grandmother. Rico bends down and smiles at the old woman through the passenger window. He nods. No, the pleasure is all mine, the nod says. She'll be fine. We take care of each other here. He jots something down on a scrap of paper, then hands it to the girl and makes a gesture. Call me. He watches as they drive away. When he turns to walk toward his car, he sees me looking and smiles at the innocent smile of a kid caught with his hand in the cookie jar. The parking lot lights shimmer off his greasy bald scalp. His gold chain twinkles and gleams. As he moves, his nylon tracksuit whispers, Hush, with each step he takes. Driving home, I think about the old marine drinking sterno squeeze like some depression wino, about how, during those last six months or so, my wife had begun to wonder where all her baking extracts had gone and why she had to buy a new bottle of Listerine every week. I had the freshest breath in town, I sometimes joke. You can do that after a while. Hindsight has a way of bringing out the humor in certain things if you let it. But Donna has yet to laugh. I don't see what's so damn funny about it, she says, any time I try to lighten the mood by joking about the time I puked all over her nice down comforter and blamed it on the cat. Or the time I fell asleep on the john, pants down and the door wide open at our son's sixth birthday party. Or when I tackled that animated Halloween store dummy after I triggered the motion sensor and thought it was waving a knife at me. It's important to be able to laugh at yourself, I tell her on these occasions. It's part of the recovery process. Yeah, she says. You keep saying that. Rico used to manage a strip club, Mustang Sally's out on Route 7. He dealt dope to the dancers and arranged escorts for old men and truckers on the sly. When the owner caught wind of it and canned him, Rico took his business as well as some of the girls he'd hooked over to the south side and started running them out of a bar called the Sundown. My lust for strange women is one of my many shortcomings, so I've heard some things, like how he stakes out the meetings over at the recovery clinic, offers rides to girls fresh out of treatment, clean but still mixed up in the head, gives them free dope before past experience reminds them there's no such thing. Rico glosses over that part of his story 
during the Saturday evening panel discussion at Fellowship Hall might make him look bad in front of the new girl who finally stood and introduced herself at the beginning of the meeting. Hi, I'm Nicky, alcoholic addict. The way he tells it, he was up to a gallon of bottom-shelf gin a day before his broken spirit just couldn't take any more. I had a spiritual malady, he says, looking down at his laced fingers and shaking his head. But now I got a program, thanks to my higher power. He points to a gold-ringed finger toward the ceiling. I got to hit my knees first thing in the morning and last thing at night and pray for that strength. He looks up and there's a collective nod. Got to turn my will over and give freely to others what was freely given. There's a murmuring assent. It could be any one of them up there talking. They all sound the name, every damn one. Nikki's sitting in the far corner near the exit. She still looks weathered, out of her element. You and me both, I think. But she looks better than she did on Wednesday. She's got a new dye job, copper waves and frosted tips, face a shade brighter as if someone had nudged a dimmer switch somewhere inside her. The ash-gray motes around her eyes have faded a bit. It could just as likely be the makeup, though, an illusion. She looks in my direction, and I offer a nod, a casual smile. She smiles back. For a moment, that smile gets me thinking about the things I could do to her, that we could do to each other, the urges we could foster, the sorrows we could subdue. But with no chemical buffer between these thoughts and my desire to be decent, the moment passes quickly, and I only feel disgusted with myself. When the discussion is over, Rico returns to the table where Nikki is sitting. He's done a good job keeping her isolated, even in these crowded rooms, always whispering in her ear or pointing out something on the meeting schedule, something in the big book, some disapproving glances, but no one ever says anything. It's typical. Pay lip service to the program, then turn a blind eye when shit gets shady. Seems to be the common approach. Less than a year in, and I figure it out this much. Of course, there are the kinds of things I'm supposed to work through with my sponsor, reservations, resentments, the bondage of self, but even if mine didn't jump ship, I suspect I'd have my doubts. I try to tell myself, maybe you should stop thinking so damn much. It's rarely done you any good. Take your own inventory. His business is none of yours. But when I see them get into his jag after the meeting lets out, Nicky in a pair of tight black pants and spiked heels, Rico in his gaiters and creased jeans, I decide that on second thought. Maybe it is. When it comes to righting one's wrongs, making amends, some are easier than others, paying off outstanding debts, for instance. Depending on the amount, it might take some time, but it's straightforward. When it's done, it's done. Some bridges stay burned, and 
That's just how it goes. But it's the emotional wreckage of those close to you. Sometimes it seems there's no fixing that. My wife and son should have been first on the list, always, but they're more than just names to scratch a line through. Apologies become empty phrases, and I've done little to show them I've changed. And how can I? Donna, she still cries in her sleep. Things I've said and done etched so deep she can't escape them, even in her dreams. The women, the lies, the broken doors. And my boy, TJ, he's nine years old and looks at me like I'm a stranger, someone he's afraid to be left alone with. Ruined birthdays and Christmas mornings. I showed up to his school talent show drunk last year and started shouting obscenities at a young girl who laughed at him when he went on stage. I was escorted out by several big-ass motherfuckers. He still gets picked on because of it. Gets off the bus every day, looking like he's carrying the whole cruel world on his back. How the hell do you make up for something like that? Avoiding home, I follow them from the meeting to the sundown, sit in my pickup and wait for them to come out. They exit the bar about an hour after going in, and Nikki can barely stand. Rico's got an arm around her as he talks on his cell and guides her toward the jag. Following, I hang back. He makes two stops, first JQ's drive through on South and Judson. Five blocks north, a seedy three-story four-square with a slanted porch and blacked-out windows. Security cameras hanging from the peeling eaves. Pitbull pacing the front yard at the end of a fat chain. For several minutes, they just sit in the car with the headlights off. Then Rico gets out and goes around to the side of the house. A minute or two and he's back in the car, rolling slow. He glides and weaves into the valley over Center Street Bridge and across the river, east side creeping along cracked and sloped streets. Hasselton, La La Land, Plaza View Projects, The Brooks, Dodge City. Not a nice place to call home. I'm with them a block back until they turn onto a weedy strip of pavement and park beside a darkened bungalow. The street's a dead end, just a guardrail, some chain link with tangled trees reaching through it, idling at a gang-tagged stop sign. I watch as Rico guides Nikki from behind, hands on her hips, toward the front door. Several minutes later, the glow of candlelight guttering through an upstairs curtain. When after a while they don't emerge, I tell myself, do something. And in the same breath, why bother? Who's to say she's not where she wants to be? But that's bullshit. And I know it. A convenience. A choice made in such a state isn't a choice. Still, what the hell are you going to do about it? A light rain stipples my windshield as I grip the truck's door handle and imagine myself going in there, trying to save the day like some unarmed Charles Bronson wannabe. Getting myself opened up in the dark by who knows who. But, like you said, you don't know what she wants. And that's true. That's true. The rain gains weight. 
fat drops slashing through slanting lamplight, and I say it out loud. You don't know what she wants. And I reply, True. That's true. I say it again and again as I drive home, as if repetition will convince me. Wednesday night and I'm back making coffee while out front Rico chit-chats with a couple fly-by-nights who pop in once in a while. When he spots another new girl and zeroes in, the two guys do the old nudge and wink and go outside to smoke. This girl, a tiny blonde with wrecked written all over her, is wrapped in the same veil of desperation that Nikki was and stands on the same high ledge. Nikki hasn't been with Rico at any of the regular meetings this week. Sunday night sanity seekers, Mondays drop the rocks, the Tuesday night 12 and 12, not a single one. That's because Sunday morning, a young black girl, leaving for church with her family, discovered the overdosed body of a young white woman splayed in the grass outside her bedroom window in the brooks. Left there like a sack of trash, all of two sentences in Monday's paper, nothing but a footnote in a larger narrative no one wants to read. No name was given, so I don't know for certain that it was her. Maybe not, I tell myself, but that's what I believe, because that's how fast it can happen. One day you're in and one day you're out, and if you're lucky, you're not out for good. I followed Rico again on Sunday. On Monday, on Tuesday, because I couldn't stop thinking about it. About her. Can't. He's kept the same routine, the sundown, up the rickety staircase around back, and into the apartment above the bar. Goes in alone, comes out twenty minutes later with some other limp Nicky shuffling at his side. Next, JQ's and the house five blocks up before zigzagging his way to the east side. Same house, same forgotten neighborhood. The nights have tumbled into one another, following and thinking and following and thinking. And as I've laid on the couch early into the morning, running through it all while my wife cries into her pillow in the other room, while my son nurtures his quiet hatred of me, I've hardly slept for knowledge of Nikki's fate. So now when Rico gets up to hit the restroom, I seize the opportunity and introduce his newcomer to Eileen who offers the girl, Mandy, a cigarette. Tommy, Eileen says. I look and she nods towards the brewing coffee urn. I nod back and when the coffee's ready, I bring them each a cup loaded with cream and sugar. As I'm walking away, I hear Eileen say, Honey, there ain't nothing you done. Nothing you can say that'll shock me. You know what they used to call me? used to call me Eileen the Blowjob Queen. That gets a smile out of the girl, and it's enough that I think maybe she has a chance. When Rico returns from the restroom, he doesn't look happy when he sees Mandy making friends, but he doesn't interfere. Throughout the rest of the meeting, I watch him watching her. Tonight's speaker is one of those old-timer windbags that likes to quote from the big book like a preacher reciting Bible verses, page numbers, and entire paragraphs from memory. It's the kind of pretentious proselytizing that impresses some people, but not me. Each time he launches into one of his 
The big book tells us, Spiels, I busy my mind with anything I can keep from listening. But there's only one thing on my mind. Rico sits there, mean-mugging Eileen, but trying not to be obvious about it. When the meeting is over, some people disperse while others linger, like me, afraid to go home and face the rubble that still remains under their own roofs. Eileen invites me to join her, Mandy and a few others, for coffee at the Idle Hour Diner. Thanks, I say, but I'll take a rain check. Outside these rooms, hell, even inside, I still have trouble socializing when I'm sober, even after almost a year. It's one of the drawbacks of getting carried away so young, never learning how to engage in basic human interactions. Rico watches them all piling into their cars with a scowl on his face, lips drawn tight, jaw clenched. I'd like to say it feels good to see him like this, for him to not know that I know, if no one else seems to, what he's all about. And perhaps it does. Perhaps it also feels good to know that now a girl might make it. But what's that worth, really? There will be others, and even the ones who manage to dodge the Ricos of the world have to choose sooner or later. And right choices are hard for people like us. Any fool will tell you. This spring has been a wet one. And I've been lucky to clock maybe 20 hours a week at the wash and wax. Today's fair, but slow. I'm toweling off a cherry red Audi sedan and keep seeing the last month or so playing in its shiny surface, Rico and Nicky, and dark roads leading to dark houses. And the last year? Clusters of disconsolate faces filling church basements and union halls waiting to be freed nodding to lies and nodding to lies and nodding until they believe, until they can embrace the things they've done. Finally close their eyes and sleep. My sponsor's mugshot in the local paper, the taunting lure of neon lights, Donna and TJ and the bitter memories that float around inside them, days stacked on days stacked on days of thinking this is it, this is it, this is how it ends not with a bang or a whimper, but a cold and stunning silence. It's not that late, only 8.30, but I've been gone all day. When I walk in, TJ retreats into his video games and my wife retreats to the bedroom. They don't have to grant me forgiveness, I remind myself. But hopefully, someday they will. Hopefully, I'll soon learn to show them I've changed. Hopefully I have, though I've received my one-year coin, and though there are some who walk the talk, my faith in the program is tenuous at best. I see wolves and I see sheep and I see that we're all of us, one or the other. I see that you can change all the aspects of your life that they say to change people, places, and things, but our natures are seldom overcome. If I make it till midnight, I'll have another 24 hours under my belt. One more day of walking a straight line on solid ground to show for a lifetime lost at sea. One more day stacked on another. 
maybe one closer to serenity. But as I sit in the kitchen, in darkness save for the hall light pooling on the floor, I stare at the book in front of me, the one that's supposed to have all the answers and know that some things wrecked can't be salvaged. I place an ashtray on top of it and watch it fill. The hours pass. I picture the suspicion in my wife's eyes each night when I return home, each night when I run out of reasons not to. She hasn't said it, but hasn't needed to, her silence so much louder than words. She thinks I'm back on the bottle, and with a growing dread that I'll never be absolved, I begin to think that maybe I should be. Isn't that nice? I think I'd probably like to play more uh, of this book, possibly next week. Uh, we'll see what happens. I want to also mention, uh, getting back to uh, the concert pianist, Katya Bunyatishvili, uh, I wanted to mention that you can listen to this anytime you like. And that's the great part of these podcasts, of the podcast concept. You can go back to whichever episode you want to listen to, going all the way back to the first season. Uh, it's all right there. If you, if you use um, Spotify, It'll give you the whole list of all the episodes. You don't have to watch just, or excuse me, you don't have to listen to just the uh, the latest one. You can go back as far as you like and listen anytime you want, and I hope you do. Uh, that would be great. Come back, listen to the latest episode or an earlier one. So that brings us to the end of yet another episode of Tom Reed, Your Story. Portions were pre-recorded. Please tell your friends if you enjoyed your visit today because we're always looking for new ones. Thanks, Anchor.fm, for this opportunity. I greatly appreciate it. Please visit us at the podcast Facebook group. Until next week, take care, everyone. Bye now. This is Tom Zania. For more information on my availability for your e-learning, commercial, or audiobook project, visit my website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. We hope you visit us again real soon for another episode of Tom Reads Your Story.